the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, November 16th. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be looking at Greencore's supersized $745 million acquisition of Peacock Foods in the United States. Greencore Chief Executive Patrick Coveney will join us by phone to tell us why this represents a good deal for the Irish food company. Later, I'll be joined in studio by some members of the Irish Times Business team who'll be looking back at some of the main stories of the week. Everything from the route of bonds to public sector pay and our links plans to add more transatlantic routes to its network. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. But first to Greencore. On Monday, the Dublin-based but London-listed company announced plans to acquire Peacock Foods in the US for $745 million. It'll be the biggest acquisition in the company's history and give it a substantial footprint in the growing convenience food market in the United States. Uh, Greencore Chief Executive Patrick Coveney joins me on the line now from London. Uh, Patrick, this deal uh, for Peacock Foods, it's a big, big price. Uh, explain the rationale behind it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big price, uh, Karen, because it's a, it's a big company and it's a big deal. So, um, I mean, we're, we're excited about doing it. I mean, in, 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 to a certain degree, we're daunted by it. It's, it's by far the biggest thing that Green Corps has done. Um, you know, where, you know, previously, um, you know, we made a, a very, very successful acquisition of, of Unique five and a half years ago in the UK. Um, and that transformed our, our UK convenience food business and our, our UK food to go business very, very successfully. And, you know, we think uh, this business, which we've spent, um, you know, six to eight months looking at hard, um, is going to give us the same platform to um, to have a, a strong, growing, profitable convenience food business in America. Right, okay. Let's put some numbers uh, behind the company, if you like. It's based in Illinois. Um, What's its specialities? Um, How big is it in terms of employee numbers, revenues? What kind of share of the market does it have in the U.S.? Yeah, so so they have sales of about a billion dollars. They have... um, uh, their EBITDA, which is so sort of that their me- their key measure of profit, um, is just over seventy two million dollars. Um, they have about three thousand employees. Uh, the core of their um, uh, of their business is in areas that Greencore also manufactures in. So they make um, um, uh, frozen breakfast sandwiches under the Jimmy Dean brand. Uh, they make kids lunch meals um, under the Lunchables brand. Um, and then they are the industry leader in a in the very fast growing salad kits business, where they're they're basically taking, assembling and bundling um, dressings, sauces, croutons, uh, pieces of protein, pieces of cheese, and bundling them with fresh um, salad ingredients into kits that consumers can can open and assemble and have a ready to go um, a salad meal straight away. So. Um, that's the core of the business. In each of the product areas in which they're in, they actually are the market leader. Um, and fortunately, each of those product areas are also in good growth. Um, so you've got a business that has, um, you know, plays to the same convenience food trends that we've spoken about for some time, uh, does it with industry-leading uh, uh partners, if I can describe it in that way, um, and is delivering strong growth. And some of those partners are Kraft Heinz, Tyson and Dole, three big names in, in the food yeah. sector in the, in the US. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're, um, the, and, and that's an important difference Karen, between, um, between how this business goes to market and how Greencore currently does. Um, the core customer set 
of the peacock business is the large brand owners or manufacturer, traditional manufacturer brand owners or CPG companies as they would be known in the States. Um, whereas uh, Greencore tends to work also with brand owners, but those brand owners are retailers. So we have customer branded or um, some people would call a private label um, uh, food manufacturer for you know people like um, M&S, Tesco, Sainsbury, Asda, Co-op in the UK, and for Starbucks and 7-Eleven in America, whereas Peacock accesses the consumer markets for uh, for convenience food through a set of partnerships with large CPG companies, which is slightly different from what we do. Yeah, OK. Now, the only pushback to date I hear uh, is around the size of the rights issue. You need a lot of money, obviously, to make this yeah. deal, uh, to push it through. It's almost $746 million, the acquisition yeah. price. And you're planning a rights issue involving uh, raising £439.4 million sterling. And that's going to involve nine new shares issued at 153 pence each for every 13 existing shares. Uh, that's a big discount to the current share price, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, the, the two things I'd say uh, on that, I mean, uh, for, this is a significant acquisition. We started the conversation by um, uh, describing it that way. Um, you know, one of the things that um, our shareholders have, um, um, you know, uh, aligned with our board and management team on, if I could describe it in that way over the last number of years, um, is the importance of actually being um, balanced and prudent in terms of how we put together and run our balance sheet. So although we are a cash-generative business, we don't like to contemplate having the leverage of the business uh, much higher than it is today. Uh, we currently run the business at uh, just under two and a half times net debt to EBITDA as a measure of that. Um, and what we've decided to do um, is to um, is to pitch the what I've just got called the pro forma leverage of the business at the same level post the transaction as before. So in order to do that, we're raising a lot more money uh, from uh, from our shareholders through equity than we are from our lenders through debt. Mm. And we are raising about 190 million sterling um, okay. of, um, of debt, but we're raising, for, as you say, 430, just over 439 million pounds uh, yeah. of equity. Now, now you mentioned this was nine months in yeah. gestation. I presume that yeah. you're comfortable that you have uh, sufficient votes in the bag if you like to get this across the line when you hold your shareholder EGM on December 7th. Um, yeah, we will be confident in that. I mean, you know, I'm, um, uh, if I make a kind of more um, kind of point in principle first, I mean, it is the job of management and more particularly the board to set and determine the strategy of the company, right? And we've always thought that. I've always thought that. It's also the job of management to make sure we communicate that strategy clearly uh, to shareholders and we form a view as to what shareholders will think of things. But, um, but we would never and I would never uh, set out with a... Um, what I would describe as kind of an asking shareholders what our strategy should be approach that you know that just wouldn't be right. Um, so, but what we do need to do, and um, and what we did last week was, you know, convention here is that before you uh, would launch a transaction of this type, which is a um, a class one uh, transaction in terms of its size, particularly with the rights issue that's attached to that, you know, we would go and get shareholder views in advance of formally launching the transaction, and so. Um, I think I said to you the other day, you know, in the second half of last week, we would have gone and spoken to 12 of our large shareholders uh, to, you know, present and share uh, the strategy, the deal, uh, the financial metrics with them. Um, and quite explicitly uh, to check in whether based on that they would be supportive both of the transaction itself and also the funding approach that we had for that. And we got a high level of confidence in, in both regards 
in in those engagements last week and unfortunately you know that enthusiasm towards the uh, towards the strategy and the transaction has been um, has been continued this week as we've gone public with it and um, and spoken to many other shareholders and analysts and so forth and um, you know, I don't think you, you should overly rely on this, but as, as I think you can would have seen from the both the market sentiment as represented by the the research analysts who, who cover us, but more particularly the market sentiment as represented by our share price this week. Um, uh, shareholders yeah, support the transaction has been good been so fun, far. Yeah. Um, Patrick, there's always risk when you do a big deal like this. There's always the chance that it could go wrong, that management gets distracted from other parts of the business and so forth. A lot of European companies have gone into the US, into the food sector and failed. Uh, Greencore, back in the day, back in the 90s, uh, you had Imperial Holly. Uh, that was a sugar uh, transaction uh, and that's one that ended up costing the company 40 million, uh, I think it was about 40 million euro. So why are you certain that this deal is going to work for Greencore right now? Yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. Um, I mean, the management of risk is an important feature of for any executive and any board. Um, I mean, there, there are no absolute certainties. Uh, we are confident that this is the uh, the right um, strategy and deal for Greencore. Um, we like the U.S. market. Uh, we like. Um, we think um, we can have a a scale profitable convenience food business in America that that matches. The, the scale and, uh, and profitability of our um, um, of our business in the UK, um, but you know, in order to do that, we're um, you know we're we've had to uh, go through a very very rigorous diligence process, um, both in terms of financial diligence, but also trying to understand uh, the team, the culture, the customer base, the forward looking strategy, and the broader industry conduct, uh, context in America. Now we've we, we've done that work well. We're confident that it's a good um, good thing to do. We wouldn't be representing and advocating something of this scale to shareholders unless we were. But um, but you know, assuming shareholders support this, uh, Karen, and um, uh, on the seventh of December, um, the transaction will then complete at the end of December. But we'll then have to get on with uh, you know sustaining the performance and delivering the. Um, uh, the business benefits that we've set out in um, in our communication to shareholders. Yeah, there is another risk, uh, isn't there? Because we're, we're talking about health and wellness uh, more and more these days and there's a huge focus on obesity. I'm just wondering if processed foods really are the way to go for the world's population to become healthier. I mean, you're a guy who, uh, you, you know, you take a lot of uh, time and pride in your own health. Uh, you're a very fit guy. I, I just wonder, would you have uh, on a regular basis or even on an occasional basis, would you eat a frozen breakfast sandwich? Um, I do when I'm in. Um, well, so let, let 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 me give a more uh, more considered response, right? So, so we we are very conscious of um, all of the trends in the um, uh, in the food industry. We we actually have the level of processed food that we're talking about, either in this business or in um, in Green Corps more broadly, is very modest. Um, you know, we we assemble from you know uh, base ingredients uh, products that. Are convenient for consumers to shop and convenient to eat. Um, where the the type of product ranges that we have in in, in salads, in fresh sandwiches, um, in you know some of the bistro boxes or protein boxes that we have are very um, very attractive to consumers and, and are widely regarded as being healthy. Um, now, your your narrow question on do I eat um, do I eat some of the breakfast sandwiches that we make? Absolutely. And um, when I'm in the states, um, you know, we manufacture the. Today, Greencore, uh, that is, we manufacture the um, uh, breakfast sandwiches that are served in Starbucks. Those products are distributed through a frozen supply chain, and they're heated 
and served hot to um, to consumers in store. And you know, when I'm in um, uh, Boston or uh, or Chicago or uh, Northern Florida um, or Seattle, where I am often with that customer, um, you know, I'm conscious that we're making the product there, and um, it feels very healthy to eat. Right. Okay. So you're happy that this is a sustainable business model going forward. That there won't be something coming down the track, maybe that might um, put a question mark over the kind of products that that, that you supply. Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, and but I think the the slightly longer answer is that you know you you got to track all of these trends and you have got to evolve the product range to reflect changing consumer trends. Sure. Um, okay. And you know we'll absolutely be doing that with. Um, you know, right the way across our range in, in each of the geographies in which we operate. Okay, now Brexit obviously is not a big issue and this year came the vote uh, came out of the blue somewhat in June. You've got a, you've got a very big substantial convenience food uh, business in the UK. What is Brexit yeah. going to mean for Greencore? Um, and are you having to push through some price increases on, on customers? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing um, to say about our business is that, um, you know, we manufacture in market for sale in that market. So, you know, a lot of the businesses that have been um, weakened by the, um, uh, you know, the Brexit vote so far um, have have been struggling with kind of, you know, big differences in exchange, whether, including a lot of Irish businesses, by, by the way, where they're manufacturing in euro in you know, countries that have a euro cost base and selling into sterling, and there's been a material devaluation of sterling. Um, we don't have that kind of risk because, you know, we manufacture in the UK, most of our costs are incurred in the UK, and we sell in the UK. Um, it is true that there that a consequence of Brexit is that, is that there is a, a somewhat modest increase in the raw material and packaging bill that we have, because about a quarter of our raw materials and packaging we, we source from outside the UK for assembly in the UK. Um, and so we're, you know, we're having to mitigate that impact through, um, um, you know, through a combination of efficiencies, product changes, and pricing. Right. What kind of uh, is food price inflation going to be a feature of the UK market over the next few years? I think it will be. I don't Any? think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be of the kind of magnitude that we would have seen in um, 2008 or 2009. But um, I think it is. Um, I think it is a feature of the. Um, likely to be a feature of the market over the next couple of years. And what kind of level do you think? Uh, hard to be precise. We we think it'll be mid-single digits this year. This year, right. Okay. Um, what about uh, for Irish consumers? I mean, you do sell some product in, into Ireland, so will yeah. there be price increases yeah. for those Irish consumers? Um, I, um, I, I don't... Th- I, I think, you know, the, the theory of the case here, Karen, is that if, um, if sterling um, depreciates... That products that are made in 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 the UK and sold in Ireland should become more price competitive or more cost competitive. Um, sure, you would have, you would have thought that, and yet we had that row between Musgraves and Unilever uh, recently, yeah, where yeah. Unilever were trying to put through double digit, d- yeah, yeah. Double digit uh, price increases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you ought to go and talk to Unilever about that. And um, well, I mean, what I would say here is that the product that we sell in the that we sell in Ireland largely um, is product that is actually um, similar to the sort of food-to-go or ready-meal products that we would sell with um, and manufacture for Tesco and M&S in the UK, and it's sold in Ireland. So okay. whatever whatever pricing decisions they make for the Irish market um, would be reflected in the consumer pricing and the products that we make for them. Okay, well, maybe the, the news won't be so bad for uh, Irish consumers then. Uh, finally, Patrick, I should ask you, um, we have a very big food industry here. Any chance of investing some of, the, some of the, those green core dollars into Ireland in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I have spoken about this a lot over the last um, eight or nine years, particularly in the aftermath of the uh, of the exit from sugar. Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, the way I think about the role that Ireland plays in Green Corps right now is that we really do run a increasingly global food company from Ireland. Um, our board, um, many members of our senior management team, um, a lot of the advisors who we use um, are all uh, Dublin-based Um Dublin is actually a surprisingly well-located um, location to run a a business in in the UK that is, you know, in pretty much every part of the UK. Given the the regional airport access that you can get from Dublin, and it's a brilliant location for getting to and from our locations in the US. So, so I think we're I think you're going to see Ireland remain very important from a senior team board um, uh, perspective. Uh, but I think, you know, us getting involved in in large-scale food manufacturing in Ireland for the Irish market is probably unlikely. Okay, Patrick Coveney, thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now, after which I'll be joined in studio by Cliff Taylor, Laura Slattery and Joe Brennan to look back at some of the main business stories of this week. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. I'm joined in studio by Irish Times business editor Cliff Taylor, our media reporter Laura Slattery and our markets correspondent Joe Brennan to look back on some of the main stories of this week. Uh, Joe, we're going to start with you. You want to talk a little bit about the Donald Trump effect on the markets and the flight from bonds to equities. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the, the, immediately after the, the result uh, was known, Asian markets uh, collapsed overnight. And we saw that kind of trickle into the European market, uh, although by the end of the European session, I think the, the shares had kind of picked up a good bit. And again, in the States, there was a more of a robust kind of response uh, by the U.S. market to uh, Trump, uh, certainly by the U.S. equity markets to Trump uh, uh, winning uh, the election. So if you look at the Dow, just remind people, I suppose, of the dates, the election, it's, uh, election night was effectively November 8th, 8th, the Tuesday. And the results uh, were, were through then on the 9th when we all kind of woke up. Yeah, so the markets had the first reaction, first chance to react on, on the 9th itself. If you look at the, the Dow Jones, it's actually up 4% uh, mm. since the, the election itself. And that's largely on the, on the back of expectations that uh, Trump will be able to get away with uh, unleashing a, a $550 billion infrastructure uh, spending program. And uh, whether he gets that over the line, he gets it through Congress, even though the Republicans uh, will control Congress with whether he gets that over the line itself is, is questionable. Yeah. But that certainly has delivered uh, a surge in in, in, in in shares, and particularly in, in the US. Yeah. Now, talk of bonds and uh, bond dealing uh, usually makes uh, a lot of people's eyes glaze over. Just explain to us, Joe, why, not mine, obviously, or yours, but uh, just explain to us why uh, there's been a flight away from bonds, uh, why bonds are being dumped all around the world in the wake of his election. Yeah, uh, bond uh, interest rates or yields had been um, at, at all-time lows um, before the, uh, the, the, the Trump victory. And the expectation is that this very same programme will deliver uh, economic growth and will lead to uh, inflation uh, taking off again and an acceleration in interest rate uh, increases. Right. And, and why into equities then? 
Uh, again, into equities because um, because the same uh, same program could li- deliver uh, economic growth itself at least in the short term. Now there are some people who would expect that. Uh, certainly, Goldman Sachs came out um, earlier this week and they said that basically, uh, yeah, while there may be a, a near term boost from this program, uh, other elements of Trump's uh, policies, his anti trade, protectionist, anti immigrant, uh, immigration policies, in the long term, medium to long term, could lead to. Uh, to uh, lesser growth and lead to what they call uh, stagflation, which is basically um, high, high unemployment, high inflation and low growth. Right, OK. Now let's uh, talk about a couple of the Irish companies that are affected by the Trump phenomenon. Uh, CRH is one, it's a building materials group and uh, you mentioned the infrastructure programme that Trump yeah. is hoping to push through. That should be good for CRH, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And as the rest of Europe was wallowing in the red on the morning of the 9th of, of, of uh, November, CRH lifted the Irish market. CRH jumped by as much as about 6% within early, within mm. minutes of trading taking off. It is seen as, but it actually is one of the most exposed uh, US companies to the whole um, high, uh, high highway uh, infrastructure spend. And about half its uh, revenues in the US? A, about half its revenues, about 60% of its profits are in the US. And about 40% of that, again, is to the whole infrastructure uh, sector in the US. Right. What about Smurfit Kappa? Smurfit Kappa, um, it probably has two issues. Smurfit Kappa, um, the, the CEO, um, uh, Tony uh, Tony, uh, Tony Smurfit has made no secret of the fact that he would like to uh, buy more assets in America. But he said, aside from the from the the, the fact that U.S. assets are quite expensive, he said that the, the prospect. And he said it's before uh, Trump actually uh, won the election that the prospect of a, a Trump victory could force him to rethink the idea of investing more in the states. Um, separately, about 30% of Smurfit's earnings are in Latin America, and we've seen a number of currencies, and particularly the, the, the Mexican peso, uh, fall in value versus the, the US dollar since the election. Okay. Cliff, um, let's come back across the Atlantic, uh, back home to Ireland, and public pay talks very much in the headlines this week. SIP2 demanding a date when pay talks uh, should begin. But Pascal Dunn, who today, uh, hold, trying to hold the line at least on the Lansdowne Road Agreement, uh, explain all that to us. Yeah, it's a difficult uh, difficult line for the government to hold. Uh, I suppose it really started with the, or the latest episode of it started with the Labour Court recommendation on Garda pay, which was seen to offer concessions which went beyond the Lansdowne Road Agreement. The government uh, felt it had no uh, alternative but to accept the Labour Court recommendation, the Labour Court being an, an independent body. Well, aren't they also trying to make out that these Labour Court recommendations are actually keep keep everything within the Lansdowne Road yeah. Agreement, which yeah. the unions are saying is rubbish. I mean, it's it's a it's a philosophical philosoph- philosophical argument, I suppose. But uh, I mean, the unions, I think, do have a point it, in in the sense that uh, the Labour Court uh, concession to the guards does appear to go beyond the Lansdowne Road Agreement. Mm. It does appear to be restoring things that were taken away more quickly than the Lansdowne Road Agreement uh, allows for. And I think inevitably this has. Uh, this is uh, the genies out of the bottle, whatever cliche you want to use. And uh, the other unions are now starting to row in. And inter- interestingly, the private sector unions are also uh, are, are also rowing in and calling for a four percent increase, which they say would deliver a thousand uh, euro a year increase on average for their members. Members. So there's a lot to play for here for the government in terms of the public finances. The budget for next year is set. 
Uh, Pascal Donahue made that point today. He said, "Look, I have only so much money to spend next year. I can't go changing that. If I if I change one thing, I have to change everything." Um, the unions will say, "Well, hold on, you changed it for the guards, uh, so why can't you change it for for us as well?" And this all comes, I suppose, as the signs are that the, you know, the economy might be coming off the boil a bit. The public finances might be getting a bit tighter. Uh, the Department of Finance has already warned that the tax revenue forecast for November and December have to be met if we were to meet our borrowing target for this year. So there are little signs there that, you know, we went through a good few years when uh, we were beating our borrowing targets every year and our tax targets every year and there was always a bit of money to spare and that may be now coming to an end, which makes this tricky for the yes. government. Although, uh, just a couple of hours before we came on air, um, the European, mm. it emerged um, that the EU might be moving away from this period of austerity and allowing for some sort of fiscal expansion. Um, a story by Suzanne Lynch um, in its analysis of our uh, budgetary plans for 2017 um, the European Commission found that we were broadly in line with their stability and growth pact um, but they're they're showing some flexibility uh, in allowing for uh, growth so is that a good, good or a bad thing for the government? I, I, it mightn't be a great thing to the extent that I suppose that it might up the pressure from the public sector unions mm. and the like. I think uh, you have to try and interpret what the Commission is saying and, and it's, you know, there are going to be a various interpretations of, of today's statement. One, one thing is clear, they're trying to put pressure on Germany to spend more money. The Germans are outperforming their budget targets hugely. Um, their borrowing is way lower than uh, than it needs to be and the rest of the European Commission is saying to Jeremy come on guys European growth is really sluggish here you need to spend more money your infrastructure is crumbling uh, Germany has huge, a huge infrastructure deficit uh, but, it, but it won't spend the money because it doesn't want to borrow to do it so, so yeah. first of all this is about pressure on Germany but also there's no doubt that there's something bigger going on here and in the light of the Italian vote coming up the Italians are, have already been offered some leeway by some very creative interpretations of rules and, and new rules that, are, that were put in new opt-outs, if you like, uh, and the French elections next year. There's no doubt that there's a move here, I think. Uh, and and uh, I don't think it's going to—it's not going to tear up our, our our budget rules for next year. But it, you know, in the in the next few years, it could certainly leave us more room, to, more more leeway to borrow to invest in in infrastructure. I think. Joe, you were in Hamburg last week. Were you, were you, are you that person who was boosting their retail sales? <laughs> not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, another week, uh, another media deal, uh, as it were. Uh, Virgin Media getting the go ahead to acquire uh, UTV Ireland. You might just explain, it's a little bit of a convoluted story because UTV used to be radio and TV and they're only buying the TV asset essentially. Yeah, I mean, the company that was UTV Media from Belfast basically no longer exists, sold its TV assets to ITV. The deal only went through in February of this year and it was only a few months later that ITV said that, that they would sell the Dublin-based channel. So that's the channel that aims at, uh, aimed at viewers in the Republic. Uh, to Virgin Media, which of course already owns TV3, but hasn't owned TV3 for that long. So um, this deal went through um, today, Wednesday, and you know that's that's good news for for TV3, who is essentially going to be looking after the ad sales for UTV. I mean, t- the management of TV3 is really you know that they're the experts in broadcasting within the Virgin Media uh, Group. And they want to plan ahead for 2017. So, so it, it, the approval came. You know, the approval was expected, and it came within just about the the, the, the time frame that uh, the minister has to approve these deals. Um, I think there might have been some anxiety that it would roll on a bit longer. Mm. Um, but so, what's this going to mean for UTV Ireland? Is it going to be rebranded? Are the staff jobs safe? Is it become, going to become a you know TV3 light? What's going to happen? Well, even you know, obviously, when these deals are sort of in a transition phase, there was very little that Virgin. 
uh, media could say, but they were certainly asked the question many times. And, uh, I, you know, I don't think you, we can rule out job losses. In fact, I would imagine that some job losses are will be necessary and that some things, some uh, functions will merge. Um, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, that has to be one of the possibilities. I'm not sure what the, the lease arrangement is there. Um, it doesn't really make sense for um, TV3 uh, and Virgin to sort of operate another news team um, separately for UTV, I'm afraid. And I think they would probably would be able to find a, a way of merging those mm. two things while yeah. satisfying the regulator. And also the other thing that I think, as I mentioned, you know, they're trying to plan ahead for advertisers and pitch to them for 2017 after a not so great year, you know, for the well, television. I was going to ask, how, big a, how big a flop was UTV Ireland? Well, um, well, it lost 19.5 million in its first year. We had those figures confirmed last week. Uh, we already knew that they were on track for something of that order. Um, and, you know, the official explanation was um, that the uh, there was problems retuning Serview receivers at the beginning, um, that that was uh, that was overcome, that they obviously didn't really anticipate that <laughs> so many viewers, particularly Dublin viewers, would be looking at, at, at the schedule and saying this isn't as good as the other UTV, the original UTV that had a better schedule. And also, uh, which is uh, the old UTV media used to make a habit of this, it sort of slightly blamed the quality of the supply of programmes uh, from ITV as well on weekends and said it wasn't really... Uh, it wasn't really hitting the mark. So all those things meant they didn't get the audiences they wanted and then they didn't get the revenues they wanted. Um, and as I was just uh, going to say there, I think the one thing we can probably expect is that where UTV does have big audiences for the soap operas and they had a good night on Sunday, it has to be said for I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here, that a lot of those shows are going to end up being repatriated, so to speak, back to yeah, TV3 sure. where they originally where were originally shown. Were, yeah. okay. Laura, you've also been looking at aviation. Uh, Erlingus has announced some new routes and also uh, given a little bit of detail around plans to operate a, uh, a, a sort of a code share, if you like, with Ryanair, where Ryanair passengers could transfer to their uh, transatlantic flights. Yeah, I mean, it's really my uh, for my other colleagues in the business uh, uh, section who've been looking at, at, at this, but we certainly did have a bit of a conversation yesterday around the uh, announcement that as part of its new routes, um, Aer Lingus is going to be flying to Miami uh, three times a week next year. And um, yeah, apparently Miami has a beautiful Art Deco district. I might, I might, might uh, put it on my list of things. It's also increasing capacity to LA, and um, it's going to be uh, going flying twice a week to Chicago. There's, there's new routes um, in Split. Uh, in mm. Croatia and also Porto, Porto in yeah. Portugal, which uh, yes, just checking my notes there, um, on on the shore hall side. Um, so um, yeah, the Ryanair thing, of course, is 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 be- is about getting as many uh, connecting pa- uh, passengers as possible. Um, so uh, yeah, that's very, very interesting to see how that works because I mean Ryanair's attitude is. Uh, we take it from A to B and that's it we don't want to have any truck with any other travel plans that you have so if people are going to be coming let's say from Poland uh, to Dublin to travel with Ryanair and then uh, connecting with Aer Lingus to go to the US 
it's going to have to be a very slick operation. That's right. It's a, it's a, you could say it is a big change for Ryanair, but I suppose they have to look at where their next mm. growth comes from because they were already, you know, dominant in short haul. Yeah, Cliff, I mean, this is a huge turnaround, isn't it? I mean, Aer Lingus and, and Ryanair, bitter rivals for many, many years. Uh, Michael O'Leary tried to engineer a few takeovers of Aer Lingus, and here we are now that they're going to uh, coalesce, if you like. Yeah, well, I think, look, they'll still be cutting each other's throat on the Dublin-London route and uh, the other routes in which they, they, they compete. But I suppose from uh, Ryanair's point of view, Ryanair have a lot of point-to-point flights within uh, within Europe and increasingly Ryanair is flying from major airports to which Aer Lingus will serve. So I guess the opportunity is there for them to take passengers who are flying with Aer Lingus yeah. to major airports. They just announced they're going into the main airport in Frankfurt. Exactly, and fly them on to, to other locations that, that Aer Lingus don't serve. So I guess from mm. that point of view it makes sense. And then, as you say, from the other point of view, people flying to Dublin who want to go on. So, you know, just business. It doesn't yeah. mean they're going to be... Uh, and what's all this about EasyJet coming to Ireland? Yeah, EasyJet, interesting story this week. Their results were out. Um, I suppose, it, you know, in, in one way it was it was presented as a bad news story because profits were down 25% or, or, or more. Uh, but when you... Because of the fall in sterling, um, EasyJet, EasyJet gets a lot of revenue in sterling, but it's, a lot of its costs are in dollars and euros. And also... Um, because of the terrorist attacks, it lost yeah. it, it lost some business. So, so but it still made uh, five hundred million pounds uh, on turnover of five billion. So it still is a very substantial business. One of the issues it faces, I suppose, in, in some ways similar to a lot of the big British financial institutions, is what is the what is the game going to be after Brexit in terms of it operating in other European countries? So at the moment. It has an air operator's certificate, is, is what the piece of paper is called, from London, which allows it to fly point to point throughout Europe. Now, what it's worried about is that after Brexit, uh, that AOC is not going to allow it to operate mm. within Europe. Now, we don't know if that's going to be the case yet because nobody knows what the rules are going to be, but certainly easy EasyJet doesn't want to take the risk. So it looks like... Or, sorry, so it's it a contingency plan. It's a contingency plan that he's going to set up an, another mm. base somewhere else in Europe. And Dublin seems to be... One of the places they've spoken to, they certainly have have had high level contacts here. Uh, um, as and we would that require them to operate flights out of here? I, I report, it would require them to base a few planes here, as I understand, but not a major operation. Now, one of one of the issues here is that obviously Ryanair, it's, yeah. it's it's bit arrival is based here. Will that be a factor discouraging it from coming to Dublin? We we don't know. The other one in the frame seems to be Amsterdam. Um, there are pluses and minuses. Mm. Of course, Stelios, I, I think I'm right in saying he's from Cyprus. Cyprus so he yeah, might that'll be an option. Still a shareholder, isn't he? So he Absolutely, might. Uh, yeah, he yeah, might yeah. Want yeah. Him but to Dublin has advantages as English speaking and a very well uh, yeah. regarded regulator in the Dublin market. So. They wouldn't have to establish a huge operation here to, uh, as I as I understand it, to get the to get the certificate. Okay, Joe. Um, a couple of results out later this week. CRH uh, among them. Yeah, CRH coming out with um, figures uh, tomorrow. Um, CRH, I suppose, the big thing they're looking at is to see what the guidance for the full year is. Um, at the half year stage, um, even before they came out with the results in the half year, they came out in advance and, and raised expectations by about ten percent, and actually went on to beat that. Uh, markets expect them to hit a record uh, operating profit of three point one. Uh, Billion uh, this year. It all depends now over the next few years how it fares from this uh, infrastructure uh, program that uh, Donald Trump seems to be moving. Yeah. Okay. Cliff. Uh, finally, there's uh, a good story from Suzanne Lynch in today's Irish Times about a, a European Commission report warning that a trade deal between the EU and South American countries could be bad for the beef sector. Mm-hmm. And I think we're probably the biggest beef producer in this sort of hemisphere of the world. That's not going to play well with farmers, is it? No, it's not. Uh, and, and this has been, I suppose, a fear uh, fear of the. Of the of the agricultural sector for some time that this extra competition would would hit them and it's also coming at precisely the time of Brexit when there's another worry.
worry for the beef sector, which is that there could be tariffs and, uh, and other non-tariff barriers imposed on trade with Brit- on trade with Britain. So the risk, I guess, for the sector is they could be hit by by cheap imports on one side, and on the other side, their current export markets could be uh, could be threatened, uh, not closed off, but certainly uh, much more difficult to get into. So, uh, but according to Phil Hogan, it could be good for dairy and good for pig meat. Yes, indeed. Yes. So maybe maybe more pig. There's always there's always swings around about. Yeah, one thing that struck me in Suzanne's story is that these negotiations have been going on since May 2010. I mean, you know, you're talking about, what, six and a half years and still some way to go, obviously. I mean, is this a, a signal of what's going to, the length of time it's going to take to negotiate a deal with Britain? Absolutely. Uh, this th- that seems to be about the about how long a trade deal takes to negotiate. If you look at the EU Canada deal, was was something uh, was something on a similar seven scale. Years, I think, seven yeah. years. Uh, and I, I guess the real problem is uh, not only that uh, and the huge the many agendas that are always in play in these agreements. But now you have a a mood away from free trade. Uh, you have Donald Trump getting elected, obviously, uh, definitely against multilateral trade agreements and very aggressive in terms of bilateral ones. Uh, you have uh, the TTIP deal now, you know, look, between the EU, the proposed deal between the EU and the US in serious difficulty. Goodness knows what Trump will do with NAFTA, the deal between America, Canada and, and Mexico. Uh, so all these, uh, 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 this whole uh, strategy, I suppose, international strategy of, of, of freeing trade gradually through these deals is now under threat uh, and, you know, could not good a, for could Ireland. Could we have a Trump slump? Trump slump. Well, we could, I suppose. And it's interesting, you know, that part of the the initial fear that Joe referred to in the markets, I mean, if you look at what any of the top analysts or experts, investment experts were saying before Trump was elected, was if he gets in, equities are going to crash because, as as, as Laura says, you know, fears, of, fears of protectionism, uh, fears of slow growth worldwide, uh, equities will be sold off. And exactly the opposite has happened, which uh, yeah. just goes to show you that you wouldn't want to, you know. But they haven't sold off yet, I think it might. Uh, well, that's yeah. it, you know. I, I think there's certainly scope for a lot of sw- a lot of swings around yeah, in the next yeah, few sure, months. Sure, sure. Joe, um, are, are you partial to Irish beef or, or would you be happy to take a Brazilian steak? Uh, stick, stick, stick to the Irish beef. Stick to the Irish beef. Okay, all right. Okay, guys, we're going to leave there for this week. Um, and thanks to Cliff Taylor, Laura Slattery and Joe Brennan for joining us for that roundup of the week's news. Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Patrick Coveney, Cliff Taylor, Laura Slattery and Joe Brennan. Declan Collin produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times Business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.